the old pilot's plain tales. Dax on D-Day. The C-47 Skytrain was one of the most versatile and beloved workhorses of the Second World War. It was the militarised version of the Douglas DC-3 airliner, an aircraft that had revolutionised air transport in the 1930s and 40s. Its lasting effect on the civilian and military aviation industry made it one of the most significant transport aircraft ever produced. A twin-engined, all-metal monoplane with a tailwheel, it was developed as a larger and improved version of the earlier DC-2. It had many exceptional qualities compared to previous aircraft designs. It was fast for the time, had a good range and could operate from short runways. It was both reliable and easy to maintain and could carry passengers in greater comfort than ever before. Before the war, it pioneered many air travel routes, particularly across the continental United States, and it even made worldwide flights possible. It is considered the first airliner that could profitably carry just passengers. The C-47 differed from the civilian DC-3 in numerous modifications, the main being the inclusion of a cargo door and hoist attachment, a strengthened floor and a shortened tail cone for glider towing shackles. It was also fitted with an astrodome in the roof to allow astro-navigation, position fixing by taking star shots with a sextant. The C-47 had a crew of four, two pilots, a radio operator and a navigator. Only 63 feet long, it had an impressive span of over 95 feet and was powered by two Pratt & Whitney twin WASP 14-cylinder radial engines with three-bladed constant-speed props. Although it was unpressurized, it could reach 26,000 feet and carried 28 troops for nearly 1,400 nautical miles. The Royal Air Force version was named the Dakota. Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, said of it, Four pieces of equipment that most senior officers came to regard as amongst the most vital to our success in Africa and Europe were the bulldozer, the jeep, the two-ton truck, and the C-47 airplane. Curiously, none of these is designed for combat. The famous aviation author Len Morgan said of it, The C-47 groaned, it protested, it rattled, it leaked oil, it ran hot, it ran cold, it ran rough. It staggered along on hot days and scared you half to death. Its wings flexed and twisted in a horrifying manner, and it sank back to earth with a great sigh of relief. But it flew, and it flew, and it flew. The lead 47 pilot on D-Day was Lieutenant Colonel Joel Crouch, whose job it was to drop Pathfinder paratroops at Saint-Germain-de-Vaville in France. Cloud cover made life hard for the navigators and some jumpers ended up far from their targets whilst others came under withering anti-aircraft fire. But the first four drop zone teams arrived about 15 minutes after midnight and although scattered, the paratroopers were soon able to set up their lights. D-Day had started. 
832 C-47s flew on the night of June the 5th, and by the end, 23,400 British and American paratroops had been dropped. 75 years later, on the anniversary of D-Day, and some of those C-47s are back. One is Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, and I was lucky enough to get to talk to some of the crew who manned this venerable aircraft. Nick Camacho is a friend of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and I asked him what he thought it would have been like for a C-47 pilot on a D-Day mission. Yeah, so the, the C-47, uh, obviously its its main mission, or the, the most well-known mission that it had was uh, dropping the paratroopers. There were Pathfinder airplanes that went out um, earlier than the, than the main uh, wave, and then there was a, you know, a great number of airplanes that went over uh, full of paratroopers, 28, uh, 26 or 28 uh, paratroopers in the airplanes. Uh, but the airplanes also uh, did a, quite a lot of uh, glider towing, and not only were they towing gliders, uh, horses and wacos, and, um, but they would do double glider tows. Uh, and so if you look at you know, some of those combat gliders that they use, they don't exactly look like um, efficient, uh, mean machines to begin with. And then they'd put two of those behind a C-47. And we, uh, one of the guys that actually taught my dad to fly, and was a very good friend of my dad's, um, he flew EC-47s in Vietnam which is the kind of the spooky version of the airplane. And his dad flew C-47s in World War II on D-Day uh, and flew two missions. And I don't remember what his, I believe his first mission was a paratro- paratrooper drop mission, but I'm, right now I'm just not sure. But his second mission was a double glider tow uh, over the beaches. So that's, a, so that's a pretty neat thing that they did. And then also the airplanes, uh, you know, in the later days, were also big logistical um, staples. They were able to move not only food and munitions, but they were able to move big guns, howitzers. Um, our airplane with the big double folding cargo door, you could actually drive a Jeep up into it so they could move Jeeps. Um, so they, uh, they did pretty much everything except deliver the munitions to the enemies. <laughs> you know, it's hard, for you, it's hard for me to imagine what the uh, what it would have been like at their age and their experience level in life and in the airplane to have to you know go up and and do what they were doing it's kind of funny just today we were taking off and i mentioned that you know the winds were out of limits and um i was looking at the rinsock and it was a direct crosswind of about 14 knots and i was flying in the right seat i was performing the pilot non-flying function so i didn't have to worry about it but i remember looking at that windsock thinking yeah, that probably about the, the edge of my personal limits there. So I, I don't know, even if I was supposed to make this takeoff, I, I may hand it off. You know, and then to think back to those guys being 10 or 12 years younger than me, having, you know, a quarter of the amount of flying time that I had, and then having to go launch up into uh, all sorts of weather conditions, and then to get there and have the type of uh, defense that they had to fly through and fly around and everything, it's, it's really kind of unfathomable for me to even imagine that. As I sit here looking at the wind, thinking, eh, I don't know if I want to go flying today with the wind. <laughs> As you know, the past decade or so, I think that the movies and the documentaries and everything have gotten much better at providing kind of a more realistic look at what actually happened and everything. And probably my single favorite sequence in any sort of movie or film or TV show or anything is the last two minutes of the first episode of Band of Brothers, which is when they line up all those DC-3s 
and uh, it's just a minute and a half of those DC-3s taking off and going by the camera and putting the gear up, and I love that. But uh, another thing about that uh, series that just gets me is, you know, it's, you know, any amount of, of loss of life is tragic and, and that sort of, in any event and in war, it's horrible. Uh, and, you know, I've, growing up, I, I was not quite of age to understand anything in the Gulf War. So really, 9-11 uh, and then the events uh, since 9-11 have been my only life experience with that. And so the numbers that I associate with loss regarding war uh, and the numbers that seem big to me, you know, you look back at any one day, how many, how many troops we've lost in the last 15 or 20 years, and it just pales in comparison to the numbers you read about in the war, or even if you watch something like Band of Brothers, when they have the scene where those guys are flying in uh, over the beaches early in the morning and just the level of loss of life every time an airplane goes down, whether it's uh, in the D-Day invasion, you know, you're losing a crew of three or four guys plus 20 or 30 jumpers, or even when you look at the B-17 raids we had where they were losing dozens of airplanes and each airplane that went down were losing 10 crew members. It's just, for me, it's hard to fathom the level the day-to-day -day level of loss of life that they had uh, in, that, in those events through 1944-1945. My father had once flown the DC-3, and I asked Nick just what it was like to fly the aircraft. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly fun airplane to fly. It's a little challenging. Uh, my background is in, you know, it, it varies for people based on their background. We have guys come in who have uh, lots of big airplane experience, airline captains who uh, have the, the idea of a checklist flow and a two-man crew and all that down fine and have no problem with the wingtip clearance on a 100-foot wingspan airplane and have no problem sitting 15 feet off the ground in the cockpit. Uh, but then you, you stick them in a conventional gear airplane <laughs> with a free-castering tailwheel with a lock and uh, just watching them taxi to the end of the runway can be a little interesting sometimes. <laughs> Uh, and for me, it's kind of the opposite. I, I come, my background's small airplanes. Uh, I fly Luscombs and Bonanzas mainly. And so for me, I, I'm pretty comfortable in tailwheel airplanes, but uh, sometimes I struggle. If I'm out of the seat for a while, I struggle to, uh, I struggle to have a good flare because of the, the sight. Uh, the sight picture is a little different because I'm sitting so high. And then one thing that I really struggle with is the airplane is uh, very sluggish. You know, it's got, it's got a lot of inertia, and uh, you can, it's not common to you can go through a burble and you could swing the yoke all the way over to the stops and it'll sit at the stops for a second or a second and a half and the airplane will start to react and you'll get to about halfway back to where you want to be and then you come back to neutral and then the airplane will kind of slow into the neutral point where you want it to be. So it's uh, slightly different just in the control throws you have to put in and, and the amount of thinking ahead you have to do because it's so slow to react. But uh, as far as you know, sitting sitting on the ground at the end of the runway and spooling up those big radial engines and running them up to 2,400 horsepower and smoking down the runway, it's a, it's a pretty unique and awesome experience. Now, I knew Nick would be doing a lot of formation flying during the Dax over Normandy mission, and I was curious to know how they managed when they were on the left-hand side of a formation, since the captain normally sits on the left. So that's an interesting question. The way that we've been operating the last two weeks uh, we've actually, since we brief beforehand, and we basically know everything we're doing for the whole flight, if we're going to be flying on the left side, we actually put the pilot flying in the right seat. Um, and so on this trip, we have uh, five pilots. My dad, Ben, Sherman, and Shane are all PIC rated. 
My dad doesn't do much of the flying these days. He likes to just kind of hang out and wrench on the airplane and wipe the airplane down. Uh, but uh, Ben Sherman and, and Shane are all uh, real active pilots. Um, and uh, Sherman's actually our, our fast qualified guy and he's our, by far our most uh, current and proficient formation guy. And so uh, Shane's been doing a lot of work with him, especially back in the States before he came over here. Shane did a lot of formation work with him. But uh, for all the big functions where we're flying in formation, you know, it'll be Sherman and he will sit on the side of the airplane that is appropriate to where it will be. Um, and you know, the airplane is a two crew airplane. Um, and the only difference between, obviously, there's differences like if you're sitting on the left side, you're going to be holding the yoke with your left hand and the throttles with your right hand. But as far as actual functionality, the only difference between the seats is that the cow flap controls are on the far right wall. So if you had to fly that airplane single seat, it would actually make more sense to sit on the right side because you can reach everything from the right side easily. If you're sitting on the left side and you're by yourself, you have to reach all the way across and run the cow flaps from the other side. So that's kind of the only major difference between the seats. Now, having sat inside Betsy's biscuit bomber and uh, looked at the cockpit, I was curious to ask Nick how they got the gear up and down. So the gear is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting situation. It's a hydraulically actuated gear, and then it's got a mechanical latch. So we actually have two levers in the airplane. So when we take off and rotate, the pilot in command, or the pilot flying, I should say, uh, calls for the gear up. And uh, the first thing that the uh, pilot not flying will do is, is he'll reach down and we have the mechanical latch which is a handle directly to the right of the pilot's seat and it's got a little uh, loop latch over it. So when I say it's the mechanical uh, latch, it's ac it actually has, a, there's a mechanical latch in the landing gear um, that is actuated by a cable by this handle and then this handle itself has a little loop latch that goes over it. So you reach down, you uh, flick the loop latch down so that this handle is free to come up and you pull, the, pull this handle all the way up. And at that point, uh, the gear is no longer mechanically locked down, but it's still kind of down by gravity. And at that point, you reach back, and there's a second landing gear handle um, on the hydraulic panel behind the right seat, and you bring that handle into the up position, and that uh, pressurizes the hydraulic system on the upside of the landing gear, and that brings the landing gear up, and the landing gear comes all the way up and builds pressure. Uh, until the landing gear is in the up position and then the pressure falls off and then you put the handle back to neutral. So when we're actually flying around, the gear is only held up by hydraulic pressure. And every once in a while we'll get the gear start to sag a little bit and you actually have to reach down and bob the handle up for uh, five seconds or so and you suck the gear back up. And then, uh, and then putting it down is basically just the opposite scenario. So you put the hydraulic handle down and it pressurizes the downside of the gear. The gear goes all the way down. Uh, and then while the landing gear uh, hydraulic handle is down, then you reach down and you put the mechanical gear handle, the mechanical latch handle down, put the loop up, and then you reach back and put the hydraulic handle into neutral. And only when the hydraulic handle is in neutral and the mechanical latch handle is down and latched will you get two green lights. So you know most airplanes you, uh, you flip the switch. I have, a, I have a debonair which has electric gear and uh, my gear is merely, I put the switch up the gear does its thing, and after a couple seconds, I get a couple of green lights. So I flip the switch, I see the lights, and I'm good to go. In this airplane, you actually, the, the check for the gear is you run everything, and then you look at the hydraulic handle, and you say the hydraulic handle is neutral, the mechanical, the uh, latch handle is down and latched, we have hydraulic pressure in the gear, and we have two green lights. And, the, and all those four steps are done to complete the landing gear down checklist item. <laughs> 
So that was a fairly strange procedure. I wondered if the C-47 had any other weird foibles. Uh, a couple of the interesting things for me are that, from my vantage point as a little GA guy, is uh, we have pressure carburetors, so our mixture controls only consist of auto-rich and auto-lean, so we don't have to fiddle with mixtures or anything. We just take off an auto-rich and we move it back to auto-lean, and it's incredibly simple compared to a little GA airplane where you're always dialing in the, the mixture. Uh, and then the other thing that I find kind of funny is that we have five systems on the airplane, basically, that are hydraulically actuated, and uh, that's the obvious ones, which are the landing gear and the brakes, the cow flaps and the wing flaps, and then the fifth system on our airplane that is actually hydraulically operated is our windshield wipers. We have a little hydraulic valve, and that runs our windshield wipers. Really? I asked Nick. Hydraulic windshield wipers? Why not electric ones? Man, we, we wonder that every day because our little windshield wiper valves leak all the time and they're in the worst possible place because they're above the yokes and they're always dripping on your knee. And so uh, electric motors would have been a lot more convenient, I think. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree. Now, I wanted to finish up by asking Nick what his very favorite flight in Betsy had been. I would have to say up until now, um, we did a, about two years ago, we did a show in Michigan where uh, they tried to uh, do a bunch of things with the reenactment jumpers, like similar to what we're dropping. Well, actually, some of the guys here are guys that we dropped in Michigan. And they, they actually uh, spent a ton of effort and resources into getting as many uh, D-Day invasion airplanes uh, to their air show so they could do a reenactment jump out of invasion scheme-only airplanes. And I think we ended up with five C-47s and a C-46, all in D-Day invasion markings. So that was pretty cool. Uh, sitting on and and it was just Shane and I Shane's another one of our our captains he's the guy who I flew with today and he's a college roommate of mine so it's actually a lot of fun spending time with him and then we were the only two pilots on that trip so we flew the airplane all the way across the country and then uh, I don't know if I could pick out one flight but the two or three show flights we did there were you know we all lined up on the runway and we were number three in a flight of five and uh, I could just stick my head out the window and, and look forward and there were two airplanes in front of me and then there were two airplanes behind me there's a c-46 sitting on the taxiway, ready to roll on, and then we all got up in formation or in, in a kind of a trail setup and, and dropped our jumpers, and that was pretty impressive. Obviously, the stuff that we're doing here definitely rivals that, if not exceeds it, so. Well, that's it for this plain tale, but there's more audio to come from both Nick and from the chief pilot of uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, and that'll be coming out very shortly. So my great thanks to Nick and the members of Betsy's team for allowing me to meet them and to marvel at their wonderful aircraft. Should you want more information about Betsy's Biscuit Bomber and see some of the videos that Nick took, take a look at Facebook at Gooniebird Group Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.